the, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's a pretty, pretty gripping image, isn't it? Uh, if you look uh, throughout all of history, that image has been uh, borrowed, captured, I would say even in some respects, uh, maybe trivialized a little bit. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Notre Dame had a, uh, four running backs and tailbacks in their backfield, 1924. They called them the four horsemen uh, of the apocalypse. And then in the early 30s, there were four Supreme Court justices that were kind of a fairly conservative block opposed to um, Roosevelt's New Deal. They were called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I discovered this year or this week that uh, there are four calculus professors at Georgia Tech who give out grad, bad grades. They're called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then I discovered there's a psychologist who talks about the four horsemen of toxic relationship behaviors, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. Uh, but then maybe my favorite that I ran across this week was this one. felt like this is really relevant to our audience. The four horsemen of the modern apocalypse, right? So the four horsemen of the apocalypse, John's revelation, uh, are not just what may inconvenience you. They actually represent the first four sealed judgments in the book of Revelation. They represent God breaking into human history in a dramatic fashion to begin to judge sin and redeem people and rescue them. But it, it, they represent something really powerful and, in a sense, uh, pretty dark. We are uh, about to turn the corner into, a, I would say, a, a darker uh, and really heavy section of the book of Revelation. But I think it's important not to, not to skip over it or to skim over it but to actually dig really deeply into it because it reminds us to take God seriously. It reminds us that God is the creator of the universe, that he is the ruler over all the kings of the earth, that he is a just judge, that he is strong and that he is powerful, that he's going to establish his kingdom on earth, also that he is merciful even in the midst of his judgment. I think it also reminds us that we need to take our own lives seriously because we are his representatives on earth. Or we, are, we are called to represent and reflect God's character to our friends and family around us. I think it also reminds us that we need to take the people around us seriously because uh, God cares deeply for those who are lost and broken and whose uh, sin is still remaining on them and has not been forgiven yet by Jesus. They haven't received that forgiveness. So I think it's, it's sobering, uh, but it's really uh, refreshing and refocusing for our lives. So what I want to do this morning, uh, before we get into the details of Revelation chapter 6, is uh, I want to kind of reset the, the background for the book of Revelation. Remember, in Revelation, John is receiving a, a vision. So it's a vision about, mostly about the future. Chapters 4 through 22 is about the future. But he's not transported into the future, right? It's, it's not time travel. He's just given a vision of the future. And so he begins to describe what he sees in very uh, graphic and symbolic language and I think it kind of helps maybe to, to, to think about John's vision like this cosmic drama. And you're moving from one scene to another scene throughout the drama. And there are scenes in heaven, and then there are scenes on earth, and then there are intermissions in between. Last week, we were in a scene in heaven. And God the Father, creator of the universe, is seated on his throne, and he's holding a scroll. And the scroll represents uh, his authority over all of his creation and his plan to take back his authority over all of his creation. 
And he's holding the scroll, and in heaven there's no one found who's worthy to break the seals on the scroll and begin God's program of reestablishing his, his kingdom, his authority, his rule, his reign on earth. No one's worthy, and John begins to weep as he sees that in the scene in heaven. And then one of the elders says, stop weeping. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he has overcome. He's going to take the scroll and begin to break its seals. Then John turns and he looks and he sees a lamb as if slain who takes that scroll out of the hand of God. And then he begins in chapter 6 to break the seals. But the setting for all of that is the promises that were made in the Old Testament, one of the most significant of those being in Daniel chapter 9. So I want us to read Daniel chapter 9. If you're not there yet, turn to Daniel chapter 9, and let's read beginning in verse 20. Daniel says, Now while I was still speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in my vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction, and he talked with me, and he said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you for your highly esteem, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So Daniel is praying, and he's He's, he's, he's confessing his sin. He's confessing the sin of his people. Remember, Daniel's living in exile. An exile that was imposed because of Israel's sin. And he's confessing his sin, the sin of his people. And what he's asking God is, God, when are you going to release us from the dead of our sin, restore us to Jerusalem, reestablish your kingdom, rebuild your temple? When are you going to, to set all things right, God? When is this going to happen? And God sends to him an angel, Gabriel, and Gabriel tells him, this is when and how I'm going to fulfill all of my promises. Verse 24, Gabriel says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So see what he's saying? He's saying, look, Daniel, I'm going to tell you, it's 70 periods of seven, or 490 years. Over a period of 490 years, God has said he is going to deal with Israel's sin. He's going to remove their debt of sin. He's going to restore Jerusalem. He's going to restore the temple. He's going to restore his worship from Jerusalem and fulfill all of his covenant promises. And he's going to do it over a period of 490 years. A really specific promise. Now, when will that begin? Verse 25. So, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince appears on the scene, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So he says, Messiah is going to come, come again, and he's going to come after an issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and then there's going to be Seven weeks, or about 49 years, rebuilding the city. And then another 62 weeks, another 434 years. And then the Messiah will appear on the scene. Now, what does that look like? Well, I ran through this really quickly about three or four weeks ago when we did an overview of eschatology. And I had several of you come up afterward and say, Brian, could we look at that again? And could you just slow down a little bit? Because I do get a little amped up. Okay, so here's what it looks like. 
Read again, verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem was issued on March 5th, 444 BC. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2. We know from biblical history, we know from extra biblical history and archaeology, this is exactly the date that Artaxerxes issued a decree and allowed Nehemiah to go back and begin the process of rebuilding Jerusalem. We also know that Jesus appeared and presented himself as king. He entered into Jerusalem, triumphal entry, on March 30th, 33 AD. So, here's the math. Israel used a lunar calendar. That's 360 days in a year, not 365 like we do, the Gregorian calendar, but 360 days in a year. So, 483 Jewish years times 360 days per year is 173,880 days. March 5th, 444 BC until March 30th, that should be 33 AD, excuse me, is 173,880 days. Catch that? Okay? 483 years times 360 days per year in a lunar calendar is 173,880 days. March 5th, 444 BC to March 30th, 33 AD is 173,880 days. This is one of the absolute most amazing prophecies in all of Scripture. It was fulfilled exactly to the day. So read it with me again. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Verse 26. Then after the 62nd week, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Wait, hold on a second. Daniel's asking, God, when are you going to restore all things? When are you going to fulfill all your promises? When are you going to send your anointed one, your Messiah, who will reestablish your rule and reign from Jerusalem over all of the earth and create uh, your, your blessing and your benevolent rule over all things? When is it going to happen? He said, well, this is when it's going to happen. It's going to start, the clock will start tipping from, t- ticking from the issuing of this de- decree, and then Messiah will present himself, but then er, everything's going to grind to a halt. And Messiah will be actually cut off. Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, that is the people who follow the substitute Messiah, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood even to the the end. There will be war. Desolations are determined. That happened when Titus came in in AD 70 and destroyed Jerusalem. So God says, actually, there's going to be an interruption in the plan. There's going to be an interruption in the plan. Messiah's actually be going to be cut off. So now we have how many weeks left in the prophetic plan? Well, just one, right? We've had seven weeks and we've had 62 weeks, but then there's one week left. Where are we living right now? We're living in between the 69th week and the 70th week because Messiah was cut off and had nothing. So when will things begin again? Verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. We only have one week left. There's one week left. One seven-year period is left in the 490 years that God had decreed. So 
He, that is the prince who is to come, that is the substitute or anti-Messiah, anti-Christ. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out upon the one who makes desolate, he will ultimately be destroyed. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus' disciples are asking him, like Daniel was praying, Jesus, when are you going to set all things right? When are you going to fulfill all of God's promises? Verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Would you understand what he's talking about? He's talking about the Antichrist. So, the Antichrist, that prince who is to come, the substitute Messiah, is going to make a covenant at the beginning of the week. The beginning of that 70th week starts with the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel. But then in the middle of that week, we're told in Daniel 9, 27, he breaks that covenant. He, is self, he stands himself in the holy place. He begins to redirect worship to himself. So Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Messiah, or there is the Messiah, do not believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So where do we live right now, church? Right in between the 69th and the 70th week. Okay, to put this in the broader context of eschatology, we are now in the church age. We are in the interim period between the 69th week and the 70th week. The first 69 weeks were fulfilled literally, weren't they, to the very day. The 70th week, that seventh period of seven years, will be fulfilled literally. So what's going to happen next? We believe that the next thing that will actually happen is the rapture of the church. The church will be, will be pulled out of the world. Now, there are a few reasons that we believe the church will be pulled out of the world. One is that the purposes of the tribulation period don't apply to the church. They are for Israel, to bring Israel back to repentance, to bring more Gentiles who've rejected Jesus into the family, and to judge sin. And none of those purposes apply to the church. Also, we've been given some specific promises. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together... That is the Greek word for rapture. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. So we believe that this rapture occurs before the tribulation period. Also, the church in Thyatira was told in their promise, specifically, you will be rescued out of that wrath that is to come upon those who dwell upon the earth and reject God. You'll be pulled out. You will be raptured. So what's to happen next? 
Well, the rapture doesn't actually start the tribulation period. What starts the tribulation period? The covenant that the false Messiah makes with Israel. So rapture occurs. There could be a gap in time. We don't know. It could be a day. It could be a week. It could be a year. We don't know. But what starts the clock ticking on the 70th week of Daniel, Daniel 9.27, is the covenant that the Antichrist makes with Israel. So, I know that not everyone believes in me, or believes uh, not in me, with me. Hopefully <laughs> you don't believe in me at all. My wife believes in me. <laughs> not everybody agrees with me. Some people believe in me. Uh... I know that there are different schemes of understanding uh, the, the book of Revelation. I wanted to walk you through, before we get into the, the heart of the book itself, here are the four basic schemes for understanding the book of Revelation. The first is what's called the preterist view. In the preterist view, everything that happens in the book of Revelation happened in the very, very early church history, at right, the first couple of centuries. The historic, historicist view believes that the book of Revelation describes the history of the church up until the present. A lot of the reformers were historicists in their framework because they believed that the Pope was the Antichrist, right? And so they framed everything around uh, Rome in the book of Revelation. The idealist view believes that actually none of this is going to be literally fulfilled in the book of Revelation. It's just symbolic of the struggle between good and evil. So if you have Presbyterian friends, they, they lean toward being idealist. It's just a symbolic struggle of good and evil. Uh, we are futurists. We believe that there is a future fulfillment of covenant promises that will happen in the future. So the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 22, is yet to be fulfilled in the future. So what we are as a church is we are pre-tribulation rapture, meaning we believe that the rapture will occur before the tribulation. And we are premillennial. We believe in a premillennial return of Jesus Christ before the millennial kingdom, a literal thousand-year reign, Jesus will return and set up his kingdom upon the earth. Now, why does any of this matter? It matters because God's justice is coming. Okay? It matters because God's justice is coming. God, God is going to uh, punish sin. In the, in the midst of his punishing sin, though, he's also going to show grace. And I think that as we dig into these sealed judgments, you're going to see it's really sobering. But it's also challenging that we take our lives seriously and our time on earth seriously and the people around us seriously. And God's justice is coming. And the beginning of the tribulation period starts in Revelation chapter 6. So if you're not there, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 6 and let's dig in. Revelation chapter 6 and let's begin reading in verse 1. John writes, then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the, the second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. 
I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So those are really heavy verses, right? We've turned into a really heavy section of Revelation. I think sometimes it forces us to stop and say, well, is this right what God is doing? Is it, is it actually just for God to bring this punishment on the earth? I want to take you back to the book of Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, uh, Abraham had a conversation with God, and he asked God this. He said, shall, shall not the, God, the judge of all the earth do what is just? If you remember the context, God came to Abraham, and he decided to tell Abraham ahead of time what he was going to do, kind of like what the Lord is doing with us, right? He said, you know what, Abraham, he's my friend. I have an intimate relationship with him. I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do. And so he goes to Abraham, he says, Abraham, the, 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 the immorality and the idolatry of the people who are living in Sodom and Gomorrah, it's rising up before me, and I have, to, I have to punish it. I have to deal with it. And Abraham, he pauses, and he says, Lord, may I be so bold as to ask you a question? Would you punish the righteous with the wicked? Surely, God, there are righteous people living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Would you punish the righteous and the wicked? Would the God who's the judge of the earth who always does right, would you actually do that? May I ask you a question, Lord? Don't you always do what is right? He said, go on. So Abraham said, I have a request. If you find 50 righteous people, just 50 in the cities of thousands, just 50, if you find just 50 righteous people, will you, will you withhold your judgment on those cities? And God said, because you've made the request for the 50, I will withhold my judgment. And Abraham says, I don't want to really offend you, God, but can I ask one more time? How about a 45? How about if you just sign 45? And God says, for 45, I will suspend my judgment. God, can I ask you just one more time? How, how about if you just found 40? God says, for 40, I will suspend my judgment. Really, I don't want to offend you, Lord, but how about 30? If you just found 30, for 30, I'll withhold my judgment. Really, this is the last time, Lord. How about 20? If you just found 20, for 20. There are only 20 people in, the, in those cities. Okay, now no kidding, like really, this is the last time, Lord. Just 10. How about if there are just only 10 righteous people in this, the entire valley where Sodom and Gomorrah are? Would you withhold your judgment for the 10 righteous people? And God says, I will withhold my judgment for the 10 righteous people because the judge of the earth always does what is right. He never gives people more than they deserve, but he does see the heart of man. And he is just. Revelation chapter 4, we're told continuously around the throne, the burning ones are saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Perfect in his righteousness. He always does what is right. This man named Joseph Mangina wrote a commentary on Revelation. I felt like he, he said it so well. He said, Revelation helps to purge us of fantasies concerning God. God is not whatever we would like him to be. God is God. He is the creator and all-powerful one, glimpsed in the heavenly worship, and he is also the lamb, slaughtered, victim as victor. If the image of the all-powerful creator frees us of our sentimentalism concerning God, then the image of the lamb should free us of our fear. God is both just and he is merciful. And we look in the book of Revelation 
I think one of the reasons it's given to us is to see God in his fullness, who he truly is. God is right in his justice. God is unstoppable in his justice. Once one seal is broken, then the second seal is broken, and then the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. And what you see is it's almost like this cascading telescope of judgments. The seventh seal contains the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet contains the seventh bowl, and they increase in intensity. And once they start, they cannot be stopped. Read with me again the first seal. It says, when I saw the lamb when the lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with his vo- loud voice of thunder, come. I looked and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So we see a conqueror on a white horse, really a- an image that they would have understood. The king who conquered a city or conquered a territory or conquered a nation would ride in on a white horse and he's coming in with a bow. That is, he's conquered through his military strength. Who is he? Well, some have said, well, This must be Jesus, right? Jesus shows up later on a white horse. I don't think so. I think this is actually the anti-Messiah. I think this is the anti-Christ. The reason I think that is because this is the very beginning of the tribulation. And what marks the beginning of the tribulation? The arrival of the anti-Christ. And he comes as a military strength. He's got a bow in his hand. He's conquering and he's conquering. He's also on a white horse. He's a substitute Messiah. He's going to imitate the things that Messiah will do later, but Messiah doesn't show up until Revelation chapter 19 at the very end of the tribulation period. So I think that this is actually the Antichrist. Remember Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. It says, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's how the tribulation period actually starts. Second seal, verse 3. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So as uh, he begins to uh, conquer, right, in his military strength, he's able to also create peace accords. He can force people into peace accords. So he creates reconciliation somehow between uh, the Arabs and the Jews, and he's able to reestablish worship on the Temple Mount so that both Arabs, Muslims, and Jews are worshiping on the Temple Mount. So he's incredibly powerful militarily. He's also incredibly powerful in his diplomacy, but his war begins to break out, and he begins to conquer. War begins to spread to other nations around. So there's a war between nations, and then there's civil war within nations. The third seal, famine, verse 5. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked and behold a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So what's going on here is a denarius was one day's wage. And a quart of wheat was considered enough to feed one person for one day. So people are able to go out and feed themselves from a day, but they they can't provide anything for for shelter for their families or clothing or their retirement accounts, right? There's nothing extra. It's just just barely getting by. And famine begins to spread after war, right? When, When war happens, there frequently is famine that follows close behind. I think the most recent illustration of this that we're seeing is the war between Russia and Ukraine. Now, I feel like I'm kind of a reasonably dialed in person to world events, but I never realized until I started reading about this war, how much wheat is produced in Ukraine. 
Right? Ukraine is considered the, the breadbasket of Europe, right? It provides a lot of wheat for Europe, but also I learned there is an organization, it's called the World Food Program, that provides wheat and other staples to impoverished nations. And for the World Food Program, 40% of its wheat is produced in Ukraine. 25% of the fertilizer that's produced from nitrogen and phosphorus is produced in Ukraine and Russia. And then 40% of the fertilizer that's a different types of fertilizer that's produced, that is provided throughout the world, is created in Ukraine itself, right? So not only is there going to be a reduction in crops, but there will be a reduction in yield. So there's a genuine fear that this, this what we think of as an isolated conflict between Ukraine and Russia could actually have devastating effects and cause famine that, that is worldwide. And you know what? The famine that, that could happen in the, our generation is nothing compared to the famine that will occur during the Great Tribulation. An, an enormous percentage of the population throughout the entire world will be affected. Notice what he says in the fourth seal. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by, by the wild beasts of the earth. Okay, a fourth of the earth's population. Can you imagine right now? A fourth of the earth's population is killed uh, in war or the famine that comes after war. Or when there's war, it's hard to have a reliable water supply and there's less medical care and then disease and pestilence breaks out, and we're told even the wild beasts begin to rise up and kill people. It's absolutely and utterly devastating. Now, the last few years have been hard for a lot of us, right? Um, I've had friends even who've lost loved ones because of COVID, and uh, it's just it's been an absolutely crazy Time on the earth, we've experienced shortages. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but early on, people were hoarding toilet paper. Remember that? It's was, was crazy. Go to the grocery store and literally cannot buy a single roll of toilet paper. But then there are computer chip shortages, and you can't buy a vehicle, and prices of vehicles are going up like crazy, and price of computers. And now, with all the, the you know inflationary spending, we're, we're seeing inflation higher than probably most of you have experienced in your lifetime and uh, interest rates are going up, and it's just, it's a really, really difficult time. And it's nothing compared to what the world will experience in the future. In fact, Jesus says, what you're experiencing now in the wars and rumors of wars that you see and your shortages of toilet paper, so those are just like the beginnings of birth pangs. Now, I'm going to use an illustration here, and I'm going to take a risk with this illustration. Uh, and it's risky for two reasons. First, I didn't ask my wife's permission. And second, it has to do with childbirth, and I've never been pregnant. So, I, it's, but I think it's, it works. I'll find out after she comes to the 11. <laughs> uh, when my wife was pregnant with our son, Benjamin, she's getting close to the end of the nine-month period, and she began to have contractions, right? And she said, put your hand on my stomach here, and the muscles just started to contract all on their own. They're just flexing. They're contracting. It's the craziest thing. Right? It's first time she'd ever been pregnant. First time I'd ever been that close to a pregnant woman in my life. You know, and it was okay for me to put my hand on her tummy. So I just, you know, it's like it's contracting. So 
we went to the doctor. And if you know my wife, she just bounced in the doctor because this is what my wife does. Hey, she goes, hey, I think I'm starting to have contractions. So, like, like, you know, and the nurse looked at her. She goes, Tristy, go home. Go home. You're not, they're called Braxton Hicks. Like in all you ladies who've had babies, you know what, what this is about. I didn't. Braxton Hicks contractions, they're just the beginning, right? The muscles are just starting to flex. And they said, Tristy, go home. When the actual birth pangs begin, oh, you'll know. <laughs> so we went home. 3 a.m. that night, my wife reached over and broke my arm. <laughs> ah, like, okay, I guess this is for real, right? Jesus says, all the earthquakes and the famines and the shortages and the hurricanes and the, the inflation, everything that you're experiencing now, it's nothing compared to the suffering that's going to happen upon the earth. Okay, God's justice is coming. And when it begins to come, it's going to come progressively, gradually. There'll be seals and there'll be trumpets and then there'll be bowls. In fact, it's going to happen over a period of seven years. There'll be seven years. The first three and a half years won't be quite as bad as the second three and a half years. When that covenant is broken with Israel and Israel is persecuted, things are going to get worse and worse and worse, not just for Israel, but for all believers. It's just going to get worse. But over the period of seven years, and I remember just uh, this week as I was studying the passage, I thought, Lord, why are you stretching it out? Like, why not just done? You know, why not just justice? Boom, done, right? Rapture occurs and then justice. Just why not make it like an hour? Or 30 minutes. Why seven years? And it reminded me of what God did with Israel with 10 plagues that were stretched out of, over the course of weeks and possibly months. Why did God do that? Well, God did it on purpose because God does everything that he does on purpose. And he said, I'm going to stretch this out. And periodically Israel would say, Lord, how much longer? Right? How long? Can, we, can you just wrap this up and rescue us from Egypt? And what we learn later is that the Lord was targeting each of these plagues to demonstrate that he was more powerful than any of the gods of Egypt. And then that 10th plague, that final plague, would show that only he had the power of life and death in his hands, no one else. Right? God was making a point. He was proving a point. Why is God doing this over the course of seven years? To prove a point, that he is the king of kings, and he is the ruler of all things, and he holds history in his hands. And when people are in the middle of the tribulation period and they stumble upon the book of Revelation, they're, say, they're going to say, God knew, God's in control, God's in charge. God is just, but also God is stretching it out so that he can give people an opportunity over the course of the seven years to turn and repent and to believe in him. Last week, we looked at this passage in 2 Peter that I think is just so critical to keep in mind as we're studying the book of Revelation. Peter writes, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Therefore, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's what God is doing. He's stretching it out so that people can turn to him. So, Revelation reminds us that God's justice is coming, but also that God's grace will still remain. Sixth, fifth seal, verse 9, it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer 
until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. These are people who believe during the tribulation period, and because they remain faithful to Jesus Christ, they lose their lives, and their lives are not wasted. We see them, they're under the altar. Their lives are, are an offering of worship to the Lord. But as they're under the altar, they cry out and they say, Lord, how long? How long, oh Lord? When are you, you going to wrap things up? And the Lord says, I see you. I see your faithfulness. I see your sacrifice. Put on this white robe that indicates your faithfulness to me and then rest. You're going to have to wait a little while longer. Why? Because there are more people who need to turn to me. All right, read that again. Rest for a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and your brethren who are to be killed, even as you have been, will also be completed. Sixth seal, verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So we, we have this, this incredible earthquake that shakes a greater part of the earth, and there's an astronomical event that occurs, and probably a meteor shower, and then uh, another event that shakes mountains again, and it shakes the islands and the seas. It's a description of what the Old Testament called the Day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not a single day. It's, it's a series of events in which God breaks into human history in a dramatic fashion. And those who are calling for it and longing for it begin to see God set his kingdom upon earth slowly, progressively, dramatically. It's the day of the Lord. And then there are some who see all of these events and still they say no, and they harden their hearts against the Lord. Notice the response in verse 15. It says, then the kings of the earth and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and even every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? You see, the problem is not ignorance. They know, this, they know where it's coming from. It's coming from the Lamb. They know that it's the Lamb. But instead of producing faith, it just produces fear. They turn away from him. So you'll see during the tribulation period, there's, there's a mass revival of people trusting Christ, but then there's also a hardening of people's hearts against the Lord, right? Remember the old saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, and some become harder. Rather than turning to the Lord in faith, they just turn away from him in fear and rejection and hardness, and they say no. But then others are so drawn to the Lord that they say, Lord, we, we will walk faithfully to you, even to the point of losing our lives. Now, uh, that's a lot, okay? Uh, that's a lot. This, this are, it's a really heavy section, and I'm just going to give you a, a warning. It's going to stay heavy for a while in the book of Revelation. So why did God give us all this detail? Why did he tell us ahead of time? Um, I think there are a couple reasons. One is to remind us who he is. God is God. He's not who we might imagine him to be, and he's just, and he's righteous. He's holy. He's perfect in all of his attributes. He's perfect in his moral perfection. So he, he can't allow sin. 
to remain unpunished, but he's also incredibly patient. And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting so that more and more and more people will respond to his kindness. And even as he begins to unleash his justice on the earth, he gives people an opportunity to see his justice and to turn to him. So it reminds us this is who God is, but I think it also reminds us to really take seriously the people around us who don't know Jesus Christ. I want to share with you one verse in closing. It's from Ezekiel chapter 33. It says this, Ezekiel, I want you to say something to them. As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn, turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways and live. So two application points. First is if you don't know if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, this is your moment. Okay, this is your moment. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to walk out of here and, and have another day tomorrow. So today is your day. Today is the moment where God's spirit is trying to break through to your heart. And he's saying, don't harden your heart. All that I need you to do is say yes. All that I need you to do, God is saying to you, is just say yes. I know that I have sin. My sin separates me from you. I know that I've failed. I know that I've chosen my own way. I know I have sin. But thank you that Jesus paid for that. Thank you. That's what faith is. You're just reaching out to God and saying, thank you. I believe in Jesus. It is an absolutely and utterly free gift. You don't need to change your, your life and get everything cleaned up before God will accept you. He takes you as you are and accepts you. He forgives your debt of sin. And then he begins the process of changing the things that you love and how you live out your life after he has forgiven your debt of sin. So let me encourage you this morning that you would just believe. Now, second application is this. Hey, followers of Jesus, get to the gospel, okay? Get to the gospel. You need to have deep, long-lasting, abiding, lifelong relationships with people who don't know Jesus Christ, and you need to be continually getting to the gospel. Love them with your deeds, serve them, but get to the gospel. Clarify the gospel. Invite them to believe in Jesus. Have that courageous moment. Now, they may say no, you don't give up for a lifetime. I've known people who, who have prayed for for 30 years, and it took 30 years. Sometimes it takes 40 years. Sometimes it takes a lifetime of praying and sharing the gospel. You never give up because Jesus never gives up. If they're still alive, there's hope. There's an opportunity, so don't give up. So followers of Jesus Christ, get to the gospel. Okay? Remember, at the beginning of Revelation, he says, blessed is everyone who reads this book and who does the things that are written in it, right? A special blessing if you read it and say, yep, I get it. I'm going to live differently because this is what's coming. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would instill within us just a profound sense of urgency. I pray that we would, we would take you seriously, but I pray, Father, also that we would uh, take the people around us seriously because you love them. And in your mercy, you're waiting, you are delaying judgment. In your kindness, you're drawing. I pray, Father, that we would see these people around us and we would likewise have courage to get to the gospel, to share the, the beauty of life in Jesus and forgiveness in him. Father, we, we consecrate our lives again. We thank you for giving us moments to stop and reflect on who you are and, and once again say, all, we are all yours. Because your son Jesus Christ gave all to us, we give all to you and we hold nothing back. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.